Good morning. Um, so the plan had been that I would preach this two weeks ago, uh, but by, by God's uh, providence, that wasn't to be. I actually had no voice, so for two days at Laryngitis, couldn't speak a word, so that wouldn't have been much help if I had been here before you. So um, praise God to Steve for, for stepping in. And then last week, thankfully we'd given a, a week's gap, Brendan filled in, because myself and Ruth had food poisoning. So that also wouldn't have been ideal, uh, being up front. But praise God, um, his word is delivered according to his time uh, and his perfect purpose. So I would like you to open your Bible, uh, Psalm 8. So have that open um, and follow along. This is a sermon where we'll be, we'll be drawing a lot from uh, the text we're, we're teaching from, so have that open in front of you. Um, and I, I'd like to come to prayer, so please join me in prayer as we come uh, to look at God's word this morning. Father God, you are a majestic God. You are worthy of all of our praise, God. And there are times I know, God, in, in my own life when I, I fail to recognize that majesty, God. There are times just when I begin to drift. Um, not that my faith is gone, God, but I, I, I lose that passion, that sense of just the awesome nature of you, God. And so I pray that this morning uh, there might be many in this room, including myself, who need to be stirred up again, God. Our souls to be awakened, God, to be reminded of your splendor and your wonder, God. And so I pray this morning that that is what you will do, God. We trust that you bring your word before us for a reason, God. Why else would we be here? What is the purpose, God? Uh, certainly it's not to look at or listen to me, God. So I pray that your word would do its work this morning, God. Outside of that, for those who don't trust you, God, for those who don't know you, who've never even had a glimpse of your majesty, God, I pray you would do something incredible this morning, that you would break down whatever barrier is in the way. Whatever stumbling block is stopping that person, God, from seeing your wonder and trusting in you, God, I pray that they would leave here today with a new sense of who you are. It would bring them to their knees before you, God, confessing their sin and trusting in you as their father. I thank you for the privilege of bringing your word, God, so may it even be an encouragement to me. I think of Peter as he delivers your word in Carrigaline, as Aaron as he delivers your word in Douglas, God, uh, this is a great privilege to bring your word before your people. We praise you for it. Amen. So keeping uh, a Psalm 8 open, and uh, we'll look at that, I'll read that in, in just a few minutes, but I wanted to start with, with that sense, what I said in the prayer of majesty. So this idea of something being majestic. When is the last time you looked at something in God's creation and saw it as majestic, saw it as majestic. Now you might use that word. So, so, so when I'm speaking of majestic, it's that sense of awe, that sense of just incredible beauty, scale, nature, detail of God's creation. And I don't know if that's happened to you recently, because sometimes, like I said, when I was praying, we can sort of just drift a bit in life. Um, but there are times when we get caught, when we're, we're sort of stopped in our tracks and we see, or we get a glimpse of, the majestic nature of God's creation. When I was thinking of this, and we actually saw them again a few weeks ago, uh, we were down in Kerry, the Skellig Islands. 
I don't know if anyone has seen the Skellig Islands. Ruth is smiling down the back because I told her this was going to be an analogy in my sermon. Ruth's from Kerry. As we were driving past, you could see the Skellig Islands. So anyone doesn't know the Skellig Islands, they're these huge towering islands, two of them, that come up out of the Atlantic Ocean, about 220 meters high, just bursting out of the ocean. And they look like that because they're, they're rugged and they're sharp. They, they are just bursting up out of the ocean. And what's incredible is there's no other islands around them. So, so they're just there, isolated, they're so dramatic, and they catch your eye. But as we were driving, and I said to Ruth, I'm actually going to be using that as an analogy in the sermon. Ruth goes, I don't really get the fuss of them. I said, that's just, you're, you're from Kerry, you've got too much beauty around you. You're just, you're just used to seeing all of this majesty. But the Skellig Islands, they're, they're majestic. And a few years ago, me and Ruth went out, you go from a little port called Port McGee down in Kerry. It's a small little quaint cove. Don't be fooled by that. You get into a little boat again. It's all calm. You go out of the harbour and then the Atlantic Ocean, it gets choppy. And actually, the boat we were in was literally surfing the waves. So we're just up and down these waves, the waves splashing over the side. It was pouring rain when we went out to the islands. So quite miserable, but also majestic. You can recognize these islands are majestic. They're God's creation. I thought of another incredible place we had the privilege of going to the last city of Petra. So I don't know if anyone's heard of this. It was something I knew since I was a kid. I always wanted to go to this, this place. It's in Jordan. Um, an amazing place. UNESCO World Heritage Site. And you, you enter it through a sort of a carving in the rock. So it's, I think it's about a kilometer long where you're winding through, through a carving in, in the rock. And then you start getting glimpses of these amazing carved tombs, like huge in scale, in, into the rock face. Just absolutely majestic. It takes your breath away. It's incredible. And I'm sure there's places you can think of, even as I'm saying these, I'm sure you're thinking, ah, you should see my home country. We have so many countries represented. You might be saying to yourself, oh, if only you could see this, this waterfall, this mountain, this lake, this, this sea view back in my, in my home country. These majestic places. And Psalm 8 is one of those places where God's majesty is celebrated. God's majesty is celebrated. Let me read it to you. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Essentially, Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of praise to God. And this phrase that I just repeated... O oh Lord, our oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It, it opens and it closes the psalm. So it might have been obvious to you. And you might know by now that whenever there's repetition in the Bible, 
the reason it's, it's there, the reason the author put it there, and, and the ultimate author himself, God, put that there, is that we would take notice. When there's repetition, it means something important is being said here. But even more obviously in this psalm, when, when that phrase opens and closes the psalm, there's no doubt what the purpose of this psalm is, is, is there. It's, it's God's majesty. It's drawing us, it's directing us to praise God, to look at the majesty of God. And in this psalm, I was also struck by a reminder of a theme that runs actually through the whole of Scripture, that of identity. So who is God, and then who are we in response to that? Who is God, and who are we? Because if we try to define ourselves outside of the reality of God, if we try to define ourselves outside the reality of God, we'll fail to capture who we truly are and what our real purpose is in this world. When I say the reality of God, it's because so many people around us, in our workplaces, in, in our communities, they no longer trust in God, they no longer follow after God, they may have no regard or belief in God at all, and so that's the reality that they live in. And yet it's, it's a false reality. And I know that that's a, it's a blunt statement to make, but it's, but it's true. They're not really living in reality. Just because they don't trust and believe that God is there doesn't change the fact that he is. And so in a sense, their, their, their purpose, their meaning in life is, is totally misdirected because they don't recognize who God is. They're not, they're not seeing their identity in response and underneath who God is. So to understand who we are, we must first understand who God is. And we see that our, our current society is trying to flip that. The culture we live in is trying to flip that. It's, it's all about self-identity. And, and concepts, even of identity itself, are, are so fluid. So fluid. So fluid that you don't know sometimes how to even keep up. And, and these views, are, are they're, they're ebbing and flowing, and it, and it leaves us unsettled, uncomfortable. That's something, you know, when I'm watching the news, or if you're looking through social media, and you're seeing all these, these views ebbing and flowing, and what, what's truth and what's not truth, and it just leaves you rattled, it leaves you unsettled. And yet the comfort for me as a Christian, as a believer, is that I can be reminded the Word of God remains constant forever. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's actually important for us to ground ourselves in that, to remind ourselves of that. The views of the world will always ebb and flow. The Word of the Lord remains constant. And that should be a great comfort to us. And it's something we should run to. We should run back to God's word. We should run back to our church, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to ground ourselves, to remind ourselves, this is the place we find truth. Do we really expect to find it out there in the world? So looking then first at, at who God is, so that we might then get a better understanding of who we are, you'll see in, in verse 1, <coughs> you might have noticed... Uh, in verse 1, we have Lord twice. Lord twice. Once spelt in full capitals, and then with a, a capital L followed with lower case. And that's because they're actually two different words. They're two different words. So Lord, all caps, was used for the unpronounceable name of God, of, of Yahweh. The name God gave himself when, if you remember back in Exodus 3, when Pharaoh... Um, wouldn't let God's people go. And so when, um, 
when God was, was sending to release his people, they're asking, well, what will we say to Pharaoh? Who will we say has sent us? Like, what, what authority will we say to Pharaoh to let our people go? And God replies and says, as to, as to what you shall say to Pharaoh, he says, I am who I am, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Psalm 8, along with countless other portions of Scripture, remind us that God is self-existent. God is, is, is all-knowing, self-sufficient, all-powerful. God doesn't need anything or anyone else to sustain him or keep him. And the second word, Lord, we could translate as governor or ruler. Governor or ruler. So there, there, there are different meanings in those two words, Lord. So in other words, the, the psalmist in opening here, he's, he's praising God by saying, O self-existent God, governor of all the earth, you are the very definition of majesty. You are the very definition of majesty. Lord of lords, and all earthly kings, queens, and authorities, past, present, and future, one day will bow before you. And we see that even in the arrogance of some world leaders today. And I don't even need to name them. In fact, if I name them, it sort of spoils. I think you know those, those arrogant leaders out there who think it's all about them, who think their time will never come to an end. We're reminded in Scripture, there is only one Lord. And one day, all of them, including ourselves, each and every knee will bow before him and acknowledge him as Lord. So as I, as I opened and started with those, with those majestic places, those things that we see at that, that, that make us stop and look at the awe of God's creation, in those things we will see glimpses, glimpses of the majesty of God in the created world. But nothing, absolutely nothing, compares to their creator. And so there's something missing, isn't there? If you look at the, the Skellig Islands or the last city of Petra or that amazing waterfall or beach or whatever it is that comes into your mind when you think of that majestic place, we're missing something if we fail to see the creator behind it. If our focus only is on that majestic thing, and it is majestic, it's okay to acknowledge this is a beautiful place. That's why you see all the phones flying out in the pictures there. I'm one of those people, I'm at the front. Pictures of absolutely everything. But that's because I appreciate what it is. So it's okay to appreciate the beauty and the wonder, but ultimately, we should look at the one behind it, the Creator, God. I was thinking that even as we have our, our beautiful baby, Nisha, in our lives, six months now, She's wonderful, she's amazing. And yet even in her, me and Ruth need to look beyond her to the one ultimately who created and formed her, that is God. He is the one that we should worship. We need to be careful of that as, as parents or even spouses, that we don't worship our spouse, we don't worship our baby. The worship goes towards the creator, God. We see in, in Romans 1 verse 19, you don't need to turn there, it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Speaking of, of creation, so when we look at these wonderful things. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
So scripture tells us we are without excuse when we look at these majestic things. God is saying, I'm making it so obvious to you. I'm making it so obvious to you that there is a creator behind this, that this is not random. And we see in, in Psalm 8 that his majesty is not just confined to the earth below, as we read in verse 3, it extends above the heavens. And in verse 5, there's reference to, to heavenly beings, the angels who, who worship God's glory constantly. And yet his majesty is exalted even higher above that. <coughs> you know, sometimes when I'm, when I'm praying, I stop to think of that. That the angels, as I'm praying to God, right in that moment, the angels are there constantly, at all times, praising and worshipping God. And it's a wonderful thing to, to think of that as you're praying, to think, my voice is just rising up with the countless other people around the world at the same time, likely, who are praying to God now. Along with the angels, our voices are rising up in praise to him. God says of, of himself in Isaiah 40, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? And there's actually, there's a challenge in that. God is saying, no, literally, can, can you find anyone? Is there anyone else that you have found that you can compare me to? And I think of that sometimes, you know, as I've, I've been a Christian quite some time, and I think, to who else would I turn to? There is no one and nothing else that compares to God. A question that uh, comes up for us from Psalm 8, uh, which it's not stated as a question, there's no question mark there, but I feel it's obvious. In, in the opening verse, it says, O Lord, our Lord. So collective, our Lord. The question that comes from that is, is he your Lord? Can you join me? Can you join others here in acknowledging and saying and referencing him as your Lord? Is he our Lord? Because, you know, it's one thing to acknowledge the majesty of creation. But do you submit to and worship the majestic creator? Is he your Lord? Do you see him and acknowledge him as your God? Because the majesty of God, it's one of his divine attributes. It should draw us to worship him. There should be a response there. We shouldn't just look at his created wor world, the earth below, the heavens above, and just say, wow, this is amazing. It should draw us beyond that to worship him. And of course, that's what we do when, when we sing songs of, of praise to him. And there are many songs inspired by the majesty of God. I'm not going to sing, don't worry. My, my voice, I was going to blame my voice, but I, <laughs> I've never had a singing voice, so I won't uh, punish you with that. But there's one song by Sovereign Grace Praise, which says, When I see the stars in heaven, you have flung across the sky. What is man that you should love him, or that he should catch your eye? Yet you sent your son to die, that we might come to find our life in him. Or one more familiar to us, majesty, worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory, honor, and praise, majesty, kingdom, authority. Flow from his throne, unto his own, his anthem, raise. So to understand who we are, we must first understand who God is. And are we beginning then to see who he is? Are we beginning to get a glimpse of who he is? He is Lord of Lords, his creator of everything, both on the earth below and the heavens above. There is absolutely nothing outside of his control. And I know when we say that, whenever someone says that from the pulpit, there's nothing outside of his control. 
I know there's always going to be people in the room who think, except for this. And I've been in that place in my life, more recently than you might think, where I think, yeah, but, but this thing, does God really control this thing? Does God really have his hand over this thing that's going on in my life? Yes, he does. I can say that confidently because of what I've seen in my own life, the lives of others, and according to the promises of his word. God has everything under his control. And that should cause us to come and worship him and praise him. How incredible then that such an awesome, perfect, majestic God would care about you and me. That's the incredible thing about Sammy. That it starts by, by bringing us to this, to set our eyes on this majestic, awesome God. And having just amplified God's majesty and, and creative authority, the psalmist then says something which should take us by surprise. And when I first came to look at this psalm, it, it did catch me. It caught me off guard. If you look at verse 2, it says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants. It's great that Nisha just let out a cry. That was, that was perfect timing. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. It's really, it's really interesting. Not warriors or, or mighty armies, even though God does use them. Look back at, at kings. God, God has times where he uses mighty men, mighty armies. But God is saying here he uses babies and infants to still the enemy, to quieten the enemy. How peculiar that is, but it's also so, so comforting for us. It reminds me of that, that passage in Matthew where the disciples are bickering back and forth about who's the greatest. Do you remember that, that passage where they're saying, who's, who's the greatest in the, in the kingdom of God? And Jesus, I actually hadn't noticed this before, that Jesus actually takes a, real, a physical child and brings the child over into his presence. And he says to his disciples, truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus and the psalmist here are reminding us of our weakness. Putting us in our rightful place beneath God. God is this majestic, awesome God. And he's putting us in our rightful place. Again, because we so often switch that around. It's about us. We set ourselves up as, as the one who should be glorified or held up. And what is it about growing older that makes us more reliant on ourselves and less reliant on God and others? See, it starts out very simple. As babies, we, we saw that with Nisha, totally dependent. Like she's six months old. I remember when she was only days old or, or a week old, it seems like a lifetime ago, but she was tiny. You know, you're walking around the house like this. It took two of us every time you were putting her down because you're so careful, blankets down, pillows down. And even now, six months in, she's still totally dependent on us. She put everything into her mouth. She has no control over her own food, any of this stuff. We must provide for every need. And yet, as we grow, as we get older in life, we become more independent, which obviously is a good thing. We want that for Nisha. We want that for our kids. But with that can come an arrogance that we have life sorted. I don't need to lean on anyone. I don't need to, to lean on Shane and Brendan as, as my leaders in the church. I don't need to be accountable to my brothers and sisters in the church. 
I don't need to lean on them for prayer to make myself vulnerable, to put myself out there. Much less, I don't need to rely on God. I don't really need to bring my problems before him in prayer to see what he can do with that. And is that again not the dominant worldview that we live under in this world? Be independent. Be your own person. Regardless of who you trample on, forge your own way. The replacement of, of a need for God with a reliance on ourselves. And the problem with that worldview is that when you look at other people, particularly with social media, you can be tricked into thinking that that's going well for other people, that they have everything sorted. But that's the persona people put forward. If you look beneath the surface, when everyone's lying alone at night in their own bed, every single person has struggles, anxiety, fears that go through their head. They're not going to present that on social media. They're not going to tell you that. We need God to lean on. The Bible, in contrast to that worldview, teaches us that God wants us to come to him humbly, like little children, as Jesus said, recognizing our need for him. And you know when people say, but is that, is that then saying that I'm weak, that I'm needy? Yes, it is. 100% it is. But it's different from a weakness that the world presents. Because there's actually great strength in relying on God and recognizing your need for him. Have you ever had the experience of, of looking, I spoke of the, the majestic creation of God. Have you ever had the experience of, of looking out at that, the majestic creation and leaving you feeling incredibly small? The sense that I am just tiny in comparison to God's creation. I've had that experience. You know when you're in a, a valley, there's huge mountains around you, or you're looking out on, on the vast sea, and you just think, I'm, I'm so insignificant. I'm so tiny in comparison to the creation of God. Because the world around us, it, it reveals the majesty and, and glory of God. That's what it says here in Psalm 8. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So we do feel small, we do feel insignificant, and yet amazingly, though we are physically insignificant in the context of God's creation, we fill the mind of God, it says. Verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? So God, the psalmist is asking God, why would you care about us? Why would you care about us? You are a majestic, holy God who created all of this world, the earth below, the heavens above, why then would you care about us? The reason, as we go back to who is God and who are we, in comparison to that, God created us for a purpose. Not only did he knit us together in our mother's womb, not only did, were we born at the perfectly right time, just as we will die at the perfectly right time, he created us for a purpose, with great dignity, with great worth and, and value. Verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and, on, and honor. To have dominion over the works of his hands, the land animals, birds and fish, you have put all things under his feet, the psalmist says. So this goes back to Genesis, where God made us, he created us in his image, the only created thing made in the image of God. And by doing that, he set us apart from the rest of creation. 
And he gave us uh, a job, a purpose, to have stewardship over creation. Now the title here, Son of Man, could refer to Adam as the, the firstborn of the human race. So he is the one we all go back to. Through those generations, we all descend from Adam. Adam, formed and created by God, was created literally a little lower than the angels. Yet he was crowned with glory and honor because he was made in the image of God. So again, this makes us incredibly unique. And it gives us great purpose, great dignity, and meaning in the lives that we live. Because whether you believe it or not, or whether you recognize it or not, God did create us with a purpose. I think our, our ultimate purpose is clear from Scripture, is to worship God, to honor Him. But, but part of our purpose is to have dominion over the works of His hands, to, to look after the rest of God's creation. And when we look at the world around us, Brendan mentioned this in, in prayer earlier, <coughs> we can see both the benefit and the destruction of our stewardship of God's creation. You see, by, by God's grace, there is much good in the world. We have to recognize that. When we look around, there is much, much care, much good. Um, we see that, like through COVID, you saw communities coming together, people genuinely caring for each other. My, my day job, I, I work for a charity, working with kids with, with cancer. So I have to believe that people out there want to do good for others, want to care for others. There is that, that place of, of, of good in the world and of care both for God's creation and his people. But it's not as simple and straightforward as that. Because on the other hand, because of our sin, and that's what it goes back to, collective and individual sin, there is suffering. There's corruption, there's hunger, there's, there's war, there's disunity. And actually, so often when we, when we look at the, the destruction in the world, we look out there, don't we? We look at what's going on out there. But if we are willing to challenge ourselves enough and look inside, we see the sin and brokenness in our own lives and the destruction that can bring. I see that even as a Christian, even the sin patterns in my life now, the potential destruction that that can bring in my marriage, in my family, in my community. So each of us have, as Christians need to be responsible for what is going on in our own hearts and the effect that that has on those around us. Because sin does come out. Sin does come out and has an impact. We see the devastation of that in, in broken families, abuse, violence, drunkenness. The devastation that that sin can have within homes, within communities, within whole cultures. We are all sinful and we come nowhere near to the majesty of God. So as we look at who God is, who we are in comparison to him, ultimately, we are nothing compared to him because of our sin, because of our brokenness. Yet, I'm so thankful it doesn't stay there because thanks be to God, we have hope. We have hope through Jesus. And Psalm 8, I spoke of, of it referring to Adam and us as we, as we follow that descending back to Adam. But Psalm 8 verse 5 is also a prophecy about Jesus Christ. And I love how God's word does this. God's word holds that, that double meaning in a sense, as it, as it for us, we're looking back, but at that time, it was looking forward. A prophecy about Jesus Christ. 
I want to read just briefly from Hebrews chapter 2. Again, you, you don't need to turn there. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, and just, just a few verses here, uh, which references back to, to Psalm 8. It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now when putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, true suffering. You see, what the psalmist knew only in part, we now know in full. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. It remains true that the psalm refers to Adam and to us and, and our, our responsibility and stewardship for the things in this world. That doesn't change. But it, it, it also should direct us to see it's referring to Jesus, who is the Son of Man. Adam was a type of Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. And everything in all of creation is in subjection to him. As Hebrews reminded, everything was created through him and for him, that ultimately our worship would be drawn towards Jesus. And this title, Son of Man, it's actually the main... <coughs> title that Jesus used to describe himself. Son of man is used a staggering 82 times in the New Testament. 82 times Jesus referred to as the son of man. And this title, son of man, it, it, it emphasizes the humanity of Jesus coming humbly into our fallen sinful world. So that, that sinful, messy world, sometimes we can look at the world and we think it's getting worse the whole time. Maybe that's true. Maybe our world really is becoming more corrupt and sinful. And yet, when we look back at times gone past in Scripture, we see just the complete wickedness, evil, debauchery of generations as well that have gone before us. And it's into that world that Jesus came. And in that way, Jesus was made a little lower than the heavenly beings by coming down into our world this did not, of course, in any way diminish Jesus' deity, the fact that he was fully God. And that's one of perhaps the, the complex things about the gospel message is that Jesus was fully man and yet fully God. He remained that majestic, holy God, even as he humbled himself by taking on human form. Born in a stable as a weak and reliant, tiny baby, vulnerable, needing care, yet he ultimately <coughs> became our salvation, going to the cross to redeem us. How incredible is that? You could not make up that message. You could not create that message. Second Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news of the gospel. If this is your first time hearing this this morning, this is the good news of the gospel. Majestic, holy God, sinful man or woman who is sitting in Passage Church this morning, God made a way for you to become right with him by sending his son Jesus to cover your sin, past, present, future. All of it is laid on him to his dead on the cross. So when we look at the world around us, the brokenness of the world, and we see that, whether it's within our own hearts, our own homes, our own communities, we should not be dismayed by that. Instead, we should direct our view towards Jesus. That restoration will come through him. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but that time is coming. That time is coming. There will come a day when all will bow before him. He is building an everlasting kingdom that goes beyond the brokenness of this world. And that's why as Christians we need to, we need to hold that reality of God very lightly in our hands. In the, in the sense, what I mean by that is that we should keep our hope and our expectations low in this world. We should not expect that, that the whole world is going to be free of sin and destruction.